Today is March 27th, 2018, and this is episode 214 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is the one and only Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? Thank you for having me, as always. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Busy. I, I took on a new opportunity at my at my employer, and it is drinking from a fire hose as I'm trying to come up to speed, but it's good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I just am tired. New, new challenges are always fun. So. Uh, so it's good trying to work on some good stuff, but I, I, I feel, you know, as soon as I get my arms around one role, I seem to move on to the next role, and I feel like a noob again. Yep. Welcome to leadership. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, yeah, just a reminder to everyone that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employ- employers. And uh, and also a, a shout out to start. Uh, thank you to all of our Patreon donors. Indeed, you guys are awesome. And uh, and then uh, I guess uh, the next big conference will be, at least for us, <laughs> is uh, besides Atlanta. Coming, yeah, coming yeah, up at, uh, in, in the beginning of May, right? Which should be a good time. Small conference, but always well done. Yeah, absolutely. So and you know, be there, or be square. But tickets are already gone. So, there you go. <laughs> but keep an eye out. There's a wait list. As people get selected as speakers, they turn their tickets back in. People can't go, so keep an eye out. Yeah, we talk about the the CFP, but the CFP will be over. I think it's um, I think it's Saturday or Sunday. Mm. It's, it's the coming up real quick so i should really submit something if, if i'm gonna do that then yes yes indeed also in conference news our talks that we gave at tactical edge in bogota are now online yep at tacticaledge.co. so if you're curious what jerry and i rambled about independently while we were in colombia you can go watch it they're on youtube that's right that's right so um so let's get into some stories we got Actually, quite a few today. Yeah, no, nothing at all has been going on in the InfoSec world. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. All right, so the first story for today is uh, from CSO, and the title here is, Are You Letting GDPR's Privacy Rules Trump Security? I I thought this was a fascinating article because, um, you know, one, I'm, I'm very deeply involved in GDPR right now, and also pretty deeply involved in incident things like incident response and whatnot. And now uh, is that, that because you're causing the incidents to be determined or at least the second order incident? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at some, at some level, I guess they're all my fault, but anyway, um, th- th- what I, what I found really interesting about this particular article is they, it, the author here points out, uh, a security company uh, that they talked to was conveying a story where they, they, I guess it was an MSSP, 
right? They were monitoring some security feed for a customer. They notified the customer of some concerning thing and the customer didn't take action on it. And the reason they didn't take action on it was apparently they, uh, they have some, some restrictions. In, it's a, apparently a European company. They have some, some restrictions in their employment agreements, which closely mirror the, the GDPR. And that places a lot of constraints on how and what data uh, that the company is allowed to view and investigate and, and whatnot about individual employees and, 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 and specifically their personal data. Correct. Right? Yeah. So if they like go to the bank website, their personal bank website on a work computer, that's off limits. Correct. And so that, you know, that creates what are hopefully pretty obvious challenges for a security team. And, and, you know, the, the real focus of the article here is that you, you're pitting two things against each other because on the one hand, you're obligated. So in, in the case they, they they talked about, the company is obligated to investigate. And if there is a data breach to, you know, the GDPR isn't in effect yet, but if we were to fast forward in time, the, the company would be obligated to investigate the, you know, the suspected breach. And then if, if, you know, it turns out to be, uh, you know, a real breach, they would be obligated to respond or to report that to their data protection authority within 72 hours. And that 72 hours, by the way, is the time at which it's initially detected, right? Not right. the time that they've come to re- come to realize it's an actual incident. Um, now, there's a, there is some debate about you know, how much leeway you get for investigation and whatnot, but I think all that stuff has to be adjudicated yet, and it's all hypothesis. But point is, if they a company like this, I don't know if it's a hypothetical or a real company, right? But this this kind of a company in this position, if they were to investigate the breach, you know, they could comply with the GDPR, but they would be in violation of their contract. Right. And the one thing that, that, that kept banging my around in my head as I was reading this is, you know, this is why lawyers exist. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting problem. We're, and this is a microcosm of the typical balance of risk-reward, privacy versus security sort of debate that I think a lot of us has. In fact, it's, it, it's something going on with uh, TLS 1.3 just got ratified. And one of the big debates going on around that, at least from my perspective, was whether or not you could enable any sort of interception for inspection and decryption of that TLS traffic. And uh, a lot of the large financials and other large enterprises in the U.S. were pushing for that capability because it was key for their um, required defenses, in their opinion. Uh, Ultimately, that particular functionality uh, was not included in TLS 1.3. The the folks who wrote it in, in the most recent draft had the opinion that this was basically, in essence, building a backdoor into TLS 1.3. Uh, and they felt that privacy was more important than the security concern being raised by others. Now, not to get into a big debate about TLS 1.3, there are other ways to architect it so you can do inspection. But this is the same type of debate we've got going on. Um, and it's really tough for security teams. It's, it's similar to, um, 
you know, if, if, if I can't bra- watch where my users are going uh, outbound on the proxy, then how can I inspect it for DLP and malware and other stuff like that? So it's, it's an interesting problem. Now, Europe, as opposed to the U.S., is far more uh, legally friendly to guaranteeing employee rights in the workplace than I think the U.S. is in law. Absolutely. And, and uh, I, w- I will go further and say it's hard for us in the U.S. to really wrap our head around the, that point of view. I mean, yeah. I, I think intuitively we can understand, you know, but I, I deal a lot with people in, in Europe and I've found it to be very difficult because the frame of reference is just so vastly different in terms of how we think about privacy versus how uh, Europeans think about privacy. Yeah, I, I think in general that the U.S. corporate mindset is if you do it on a corporate uh, asset, there is no privacy. Right. Period. Uh, which in some ways makes security's life easier. Yeah. But as we do more and more international work, it's going to get more interesting. So anyway, not to sidetrack, but it's it's a similar problem. Now, I don't know how this is going to get worked out. I think ultimately, uh, you know, organizations have to be careful what union contracts they sign up for <laughs> and what they agree to. I mean, clearly this was a negotiation if there was a union involved with a contract. Uh but this is probably something this company will look to amend uh, going forward. Yeah. Now, I'm I'm certainly not an expert in European. We we know. Oh, law. oh, 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 oh nice, went. very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, not an expert in European law. However, I, you know, I would suspect that it, it is a common, you know, common concept that you have to comply with a law, and in complying with a law trumps complying with a contractual obligation right so sure. um you know i think it's i think it really is a matter of companies being cognizant of this potential conflict and then you know going and resolving it somehow with with their you know with their labor unions because you know the the time to solve this the time to realize you have a problem is not when you're faced with a suspected breach and you're trying to weigh the on a balance you know do we do we break the contract and, you know, investigate something that may not be anything and, you know, and, and then, you know, live live up to our obligations under the GDPR or do we ignore right. it? And, you know, they, they talk about how um, th- there is some concern and I actually have this concern too in, in, in general, right? I, you know, that not, I think it's just from an incentive standpoint, I, my concern is that Things like the GDPR and the seventy-two hour, uh, you know, breach notice requirement may drive you know, some security leadership and, and and company leaders to intentionally blind themselves. Sure. If I don't know, I don't report. Right. Yeah, which is counterintuitive or counterproductive to the goal here. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. So. Um, you know, they, they go on to, um, in, the, in the article, they go on to complain about, you know, and probably rightly so, about the, you know, the, this is, the, GDPR is not unlike um, when HIPAA went into effect, and, and they, they, they point out that there's a whole lot of demand for, uh, you know, for expertise and lots of people 
willing to step in and fill that role. And I found it really interesting and and you know a little humorous but, that they they mentioned the GDPR guy who who was actually a, a friend of the show. <laughs> So, so when you mentioned HIPAA, that there was a lot of consultants and demand for consultants. Yeah, well, there's a, that? Okay. There, there was a ton of uh, leading up to to HIPAA, the the implementation of HIPAA. There was a ton of, I mean, very similar kinds of consternation happening with the GDPR right now. And obviously, the downside impact of HIPAA was not as great as the down potential downside impact of GDPR. But you had kind of similar types of things going on. You had lots of people talking and you know, fearing the worst, and you had all sorts of consultants out there, you know, willing to take your money and give you some kind of vanilla report that really wasn't terribly helpful. Um, You know, they they do, in the the article here, they point out a couple of things that you should do, like, you know, the six best practices, keep calm and carry on. I guess that's better than, like, stopping and shutting down business, um, get it, getting consent to access their PI. Now, I will say, again, I'm not a lawyer. However, I, I work very closely with many. Um, this is a very problematic one in, um, in, in GDPR because con- it, consent is a really key concept in the GDPR. So you, you have to willingly give consent but at the same time the, the there is this notion in the gdpr that an employer can't reasonably request consent from an employee because of the real the nature of the relationship <laughs> so oh, because because the employer is in a position of power over the exactly, employee exactly exactly so denial of the consent could have a negative impact on right Right. So, Interesting. so it's a very, that's a, that's a really complicated dynamic. And I don't full, I, I will admit, I don't fully understand the, you know, the, how that is handled, but I am quite sure that there is a way, um, you limit the amount of data that's analyzed. That's also, uh, embodied in GDPR that, you know, the, the intention is to minimize the amount of data that you're, you're processing and the ways in which you process it. And also who, you know, who has the ability to access it. That's, you know, really, I, I would say a lot of the stuff in GDPR is common sense concepts, you know, like uh, least privilege and whatnot, you know, with a, with a huge stick behind it. Um, yeah. Com- perhaps common sense, but often in uh, time consuming and difficult to implement. Absolutely. And yes, ex- exactly. Uh, create and communicate clear policies, hire qualified outside help, and then get a general data protection officer. Well, I thought that was interesting because that's actually a requirement, you know, explicit requirement in the in the GDPR. You actually have to have a data protection officer. So, yeah, I don't know much about that. I should learn more about that. So I, I say this out of complete ignorance, but you know, whenever I've seen something like you must have an officer, it's like. Um, hey, Bob, we know you're an executive admin for the CEO, but you're now also the data protection officer. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually do, um, they take a swipe at trying to avoid that by, I don't remember exactly how they, they phrase it in the law, but they, um, you know, it has to be somebody of a certain stature in the, gotcha. in the organization. Yeah. And it, and, and it also has, it can't, I, I forget all the, the requirements, but there, there can't be conflicts of duty with other 
uh, you know, some other roles. But anyway, sure. it's um, you know, it's <laughs> I, I've I haven't read any reports lately, but for a while there, there was um, there were reports going around about how. You know, in Europe, there's going to be a need for something like 80,000 data protection officers over the next couple of years, which is, you know, well, I guess we it know. helps the, the unemployment rate, I suppose. Well, now we know what all the cab drivers are going to get put out of, out of work from self-driving cars can do. Oh, hey, you are a thought leader. I, I'm something. I don't know about that, but I'm something. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our next story. This one also comes from a CSO, and the title is Samsung Group Deletes Atlanta's Contact Portal After the Address Goes Public. And, and I have, we, we have to give a little bit of background because that might not be real intuitive there. Atlanta, which is where both Andy and I uh, reside, actually the, the, the lovely outskirts of Atlanta, uh, last week, I think it was Thursday, suffered a, a pretty debilitating ransomware attack that kind of shut everything down. And as far as I know, is actually still down. Uh, and the, the, uh, the attackers, and, and by the way, it's not entirely clear because the, the city is not being very open and forthcoming with technical details, although I think they're doing a pretty good job about being communicative with... Uh, you know, about status and whatnot. Um, the the some number of computers were ransomwareed, and the there was a fifty one thousand dollar, or I think it was um, six bitcoins or something like that, ransom requested to unlock the computers. And the story here is is a little humorous because in the in the media coverage of the um, you know of the uh, the attack, and I will tell you, being from Atlanta, this was like you know, twenty four seven coverage for, for yeah, a and, little while. And I gotta tell you, some of the people they trotted out to talk on local news, I'm not sure where they found them. Uh, you know, I have a theory on that, and I think I think a lot of it is that you get you get people who, you know, who want to be security thought leaders, and they hire a little, they hire a PR company, and that jumps on any opportunity like this and start sending you know, uh, you know communication offers uh, offers of interviews to those those companies that, so that's brilliant do you have any of those pr companies handy uh i you know <laughs> they email me all day long about you know, to be on the show so i actually probably do um <laughs> go on go on yeah so so anyway uh in in one of the the seg or at least one of the segments that the um the the camera the tv coverage included a screenshot of the ransom page which included the you know the portal to pay the ransom and apparently i it's not really clear what prompted them to take it down but the um uh, apparently the 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 group behind the sam sam ransom oh, yeah. group actually yeah, took it down so, so what happened was there's a there's a contact us communication portal yeah, that they had published, and the media started blowing them up with questions to the ransomware group, and and the ransomware uh, group was like, okay. "Hey, if uh, you know, pay us money and we'll answer your questions." And and the media was like, "No, here's some more questions," and <laughs> and so the the ransomware group was like, "Well, we're just going to take this contact page down, which also is how you're supposed to pay the ransom." Right, right. So now, now basically, the city couldn't, 
you know, couldn't pay the ransom if, even if they wanted to. Right. In theory, as far as we know, there could be another way to contact. So this was, from my understanding of reading, of reading the press on this, this was a screenshot that somebody took and gave to the press. Oh, is that what happened? Okay. I thought it was on, uh, okay. And the press ran with it, like showed it. Okay. Somebody did. Uh, take that, that with sense. a grain of salt, but that's my understanding. And as a result, they shut down that page, which was an onion page, if you're curious. Uh, and there may be another page set up somewhere, but they also, I think they have a deadline of tomorrow to pay the ransom or the keys get deleted in theory. Yeah. Yep. So again, it's not entirely clear how many systems were, were impacted here, but I, I got the feeling that either A, it was really pervasive, or B, the city had some kind of plan in place where they just shut everything down. It, once this started, uh, once hey, the infection started. You know what's weird about that? So in one of the press articles today, the, the note was put out that the city of Lana is, quote, advising its employees to turn on computers and printers for the first time since the March 22nd cyber attack. Oh, interesting. Printers. Printers. Hmm. Now, that could just be random IT guy saying that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not aware of much ransomware that does much with printers right now. I suppose it's conceivable. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, The other thing that the, the, so the Atlanta airport is run by the city of Atlanta. It, like many major airports, has free airport Wi-Fi. So as part of this, they shut down the free airport Wi-Fi, quote, as a precaution, unquote. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how all that's connected together. Uh, and how these are interrelated I, that one would need to be shut down. I, I don't know. See, I, I, my theory is, and you know, we've, this is something we've talked about a lot and we can armchair quarterback their response plan, but I have a feeling they developed a response plan that goes something like this. If you see ransomware outbreak, you shut everything down immediately. And I mean, everything. Sure. And I think that's what we're. I think that's what happened. Yeah, that seems seems to be the case. And you know, maybe that's a viable plan. Yeah. yeah. Especially mm-hmm. with self-spreading worms. Right. Which and is a redundant phrase, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it seems like, uh, you know, it, it, it you know, it, 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 as far as I can tell, right, things aren't falling apart in the city of Atlanta. Well, at least any more than they would have otherwise. You know, people right. are still getting paid, and they're having to you know, do a manual. Uh, Emmanuel payroll and whatnot, but you know, they're, it sounds like they have a plan and allegedly they also have backups. So it's a matter of, um, you know, of, of, of restoring. I, I suspect they also want to restore apparently the FBI and the you know, local Georgia, uh, what, what we call the GBI, because we have to like, you know, here in Georgia, we have to copy the federal government, you know, because, because even though we hate the federal government, we have to be like them. So, now, um, to be fair, Georgia was one of the 13 original colonies, so wouldn't the federal government be copying us? Um, I, think so it's a matter, news, I think it's a matter of timing, yes. I also saw in the press that SecureWorks, which is now owned by Dell, was engaged as a local company to help, I thought, which makes no, sense. They were owned by Dell, but I thought they got sold recently. 
Oh, you might be right. I yeah. get stuff to keep up. Yeah. You might be right. Yeah. Uh, they might have spun back off. Anyway, they... Uh, Toys R Us sense. or might... I mean, I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole whole other thing. I'm trying to make a point here. <laughs> Carry on. I'm trying... I'm done. I'm done. Educate our valued listeners. I respect our listeners' time enough to share valuable information. Do to do. And you're just... Making grandpa jokes. You're not even making dad jokes. To, to do. You done? Anyway, so SecureWorks is a local Atlanta company, so it makes sense that, you know, City of Atlanta would reach out to a local company. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Keep keep the keep the kickbacks. I mean, you know, keep the money flowing locally. <laughs> uh yes. So um now uh, as I understand it, one of the the main way that Sam Sam has has propagated is through uh, unsecured RDP connections. Now there is no there is absolutely no uh, public information that, that I've seen about how this th- this outbreak happened. But apparently the MO of um, of of this particular threat actor is um, is infections through through uh, either open or Weekly secured RDP servers, so which would make sense why you would want to shut everything down right away. Yeah, yeah, because if, especially if you don't know where where the point of entry is, I guess. So, so the other thing of note is that a friend of the show and a friend of ours, Doctor, sorry, Professor Andy Green of KSU, also got involved in this little project and uh, huh? gets mentioned in some of the press articles. Yes, as being reached out to by some of the local media, so. Yes. Shout out good, to him. Good guy. Yeah. Smart guy. All right. He he doesn't work as much as I do. Just want to say that. Um, anyway. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, next next story comes from Data Breach Today. And the title here is Expedia's Orbit suspected, Suspects 880,000 Payment Cards Stolen. You know, what struck me about this was the amount of time that has gone by since I last heard about a major credit card breach involving an online retailer it's it it's been quite some time uh i i can't remember one in in recent history at least a large one i mean i think small ones happen all the time but so the story here is that orbits which was uh, recently acquired by expedia apparently had some legacy system um, compromised in some unknown way and uh, apparently the, the attackers would have had access to 880,000 payment cards. But, but wait, there's more, right? Not just payment card information, but also, you know, the other kind of information that you might leave if you were booking, you know, an airplane ticket, such as your name, your birth date, your phone number, your email address, your mailing address, Gender, I'm I'm guessing passport numbers, KTN. I'm, you know they don't say passport numbers and KTNs, but I bet you that stuff's there too. Aisle or window preference? Aisle or yeah, yeah. Um, what kind of um, of food preference you have? Right. Yes. yes. Do you like vegetarian or or not? Kosher. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. Think about allergies. Mm, right. Peanut allergies. That's true. That's true. This opens up a whole new whole new venue for attack so um 
know, they, 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 again, there's not a lot of details yet, uh, but they do point out that this apparently was a quote legacy system. And uh, the article goes on to, you know, point out the, the long history of breaches that apparently involve, uh, you know, legacy systems that were not properly maintained. And in particular, that's a big problem when you acquire companies. And I've seen this you know, throughout my career a lot when you acquire a company and they're, you know, they have their own business systems. You have your business systems. Usually you buy them because, you know, they're, a, they're an augment to your business and, you know, things don't transition on day one. Sometimes it takes many years. Uh, but one, one truism that I've seen happen like always is investment in the acquired company's IT systems ceases almost immediately. Yeah, m- much less staff, turnover, attrition. Yeah, it can get ugly in a hurry. I've seen the same thing. So um, it doesn't have to be that way. There are ways to do M and A with tech that isn't that bad. But yeah, it's, um, yeah. The other the other thing I thought interesting was so a couple of quotes from the article. Uh, the breach exposed customer data that it collected between January first, twenty sixteen, and December twenty second. 2017. The breach itself may have taken place from October 1st, 2017 through December 22nd, 2017. So something clearly happened on December 22nd, 2017. That may be when they found it. But I wonder how many companies have logs, detailed forensic logs that go back long enough for a long dwell intrusion. You know, let's say somebody came in in January and they didn't find it till June. Do you have six months of detailed forensic logs to go back and reconstruct how they got in? Yeah, assuming you're instrumented for that. It's not not common. I think a lot of a lot of organizations, you know, do thirty. To, uh, sorry, ninety days usually is what I've seen yeah. in, in the past. So, it's it's an interesting. Uh, you know, when you talk about dwell time, detection time, it's usually much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was. Uh, hopefully, we'll learn more figure out what happened yeah absolutely uh but but don't but worry not there was no direct evidence that the data was stolen or has been misused so just somebody just wanted a shell account it was just poking around <laughs> I, for the for the lulls well I, th- I think the point is they have no logs that indicate that the data was stolen but i'm gonna guess that that also means they don't have they just don't have any logs <laughs> so. no logs no reportable offense Right, right. So uh, so moving on to our next story, which also comes from Data Breach Today, and the title here is Report Guccifer to Unmasked at Last. And, you know, there's a, this, is a, this is a politically charged story, and I'm not, I don't want to get into any of the politics, but I thought that this was interesting because it's kind of our attribution thing in reverse. Yep. Right? Normally, normally we are talking about, you know, some you know, quasi advanced attack that's been attributed bit. Wow. That was a bad mispronunciation attributed to, uh, you know, some nation state unknown nation state. Uh, But whereas in, in the case of the DNC hack, you know, there was a lot of speculation that, that it was being perpetrated by an individual or, you know, whatever. And, um, and, and what's happened is over, over time, a bunch of different threat you know, security, cyber security companies have gathered a lot of information about the 
you know, about the, the, the threat actor, but then I guess they screwed up at some point and you know, logged into, uh, I, I think they were communicating with a social media site that they used to, um, to communicate with media companies. Uh, they forgot to turn on their VPN. And so the social media site had logs that showed the originating IP address was from, you know, the, the GRU headquarters in Moscow, Russia. And, you know, so that with all the other data kind of, you know, puts together a story that says, well, you know, unlike the other side where we, we often say, you know, the attacks, you know, these, these highly complex attacks don't have to be perpetrated by a nation state, you know, kind of pedestrian style attacks don't, you know, have to be perpetrated by pedestrian attackers. So right. there, there's not necessarily a correlation or causality between difficulty of attack and nation state. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so, so what if this mistake was intentional and the IP address was spoofed to make it look like the GR. Well, I, I, you know, I wondered about that too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we know mm-hmm. we know that in the past, the NSA, for instance, has not had the best of luck with with securing their infrastructure. And you know, what if <laughs> China or North Korea or Iran or or you know, God forbid, Luxembourg had. Um, you know, and who who was the? There was a um, I forget which country it was. Was it Belgium, who had compromised Kaspersky and 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 was monitoring, and they saw that um, they saw evidence that um, you know, of Russia doing stuff inside Kaspersky's networks. I, I forget right. I, I, something like that. I forget which company it was, but you know, <laughs> or which country I should say. But um, you know, Soon it's not the same. It's not impossible, right? I mean, it's not impossible to think, but it's, you know. So as we learn from the Princess Bride, clearly I cannot choose the attribution glass of wine in front of you. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So now, the, the other thing I was thinking about, they don't talk about it in this article, but I, I swear I remember, and I went and looked this up to confirm, that this... So the Goose for 2.0 guy went and, and hacked into a bunch of uh, DNC, uh, which is Democratic National Committee, which is the election committee for uh, the Democratic Party in the U.S., and leaked a bunch of, of emails. Mm-hmm. And WikiLeaks was one of the organizations that they leaked through. And I remember Julian Assange, who was the, the leader of WikiLeaks, swearing up and down left and right that this wasn't a Russian. He knew exactly who it was, and it wasn't a Russian. And yet here we are. Yeah, you know, but keep in mind, like if you are if you are a nation state, if you are Russia, right, and it's not in you know you you you're you're running your operations through VPN infrastructure, you know that's probably two or three times removed, and sometimes apparently you forget to click the damn button. Right. Um, but you know it's not in, it's not entirely impossible to think that they would use some non-russian intermediary to deliver the the goods to wikileaks i mean i yeah or, or you know or hey you know Wik, you know julian assange is, is you know is not 
a great guy and and who you know and he lied i, I don't I'm know not, who I, knows I, i'm not gonna pass judgment on that i don't know he could have been fooled he could have i just remember that event and yeah, yeah you're, you're right proving, i remember proving that likely wrong i remember so, so. we don't know i mean he he it's entirely but, likely that he was fooled. So, so I think the takeaway, as I often say, is attribution is a, a very difficult game that often has very little impact on the the in the trench defenders. Correct, correct. Although in in this case, it may have broader political impacts. But from a from a defender's point of view, I'm not you know again the the, the tactics appear to be somewhat pedestrian. So. And speaking of pedestrian tactics, our next story comes from uh, ZDNet, and the title here is DOJ Indicts Iranian Hackers for Stealing Data from 144 U.S. Universities. Man, with an intro like that, a pedestrian tactic, I thought we were going to talk about your mom, but okay. She does walk. Now, come on. And, and tactically. Yeah. So um, so the, the, the Department of Justice has filed charges against a number of different Iranian people and against the Iranian, uh, sorry, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, who is, you know, a, I guess, the effectively the military in, or a, a, a unit of the military in Iran. And it's a, it's a very long and somewhat at times dry, but also kind of interesting indictment. But there were there were really three different classes of uh, victims here. One was the universities, and the and and uh, they seemed to be the the primary target. They s- apparently stole thirty one and a half terabytes of data from from these universities, which that's uh, that's, that, a f- that, that's a fair that's amount. a lot lot of university porn. <laughs> You got to believe there's a lot of a lot of something in there. I, I don't know what. But well, and, and, and quick aside, here's the interesting thing about universities. From my brief foray into working in in, in university type networks, is they typically have two networks, right? They've got the the student network, which is usually wide open, wild west, raw internet. You know, you're running naked kind of stuff. And then you have like the corporate side of a university environment. Right. So it's always interesting when I see this sort of thing. Where did this these thefts come from? Right? Is it is it uh, average student just happened to have his laptop plugged in and you know also got that hacked and or is it you know getting back into the corporate environments? It's and into the research environments. It's it's interesting to know kind of where this came from and we don't have those details. But well, actually I, we do. Oh, so I, in the in the indictment in the indictment they actually describe how the attacks went down. Uh, so, so the way the way it happened, well, at least in the so, so each of the different different victims had a slightly different way they were attacked. The the universities, what happened was uh, something like a hundred thousand different university professors were targeted, right? So, mm-hmm. and it was with spear phishing emails, and uh-huh. and the spear phishing emails were crafted to come from some other professor from some other university asking the professor about some research that was on their website and you know the, the victims were very web, targeted it was very very, very targeted and they used they used lookalike urls so when the 
you know, when the, the professor, the victim professor clicked on the link, you saw the link, it was like, oh, well, that's my university. And uh, so I click on it and, oh, I have to log in. And, you know, this is like the, the whole uh, WellPoint Anthem breach from a few years ago where they used W311 right. POINT, some, you know, similar kind of, of concept. They were just phishing credentials and they used that to effectively get into email. And as far as I can tell, most of the data that they stole came out of email, which hmm. is a goddamn lot of email. Well, you're dealing with what 144 different universities. Yeah, it was it was many thousands of professors across those yeah. 144 universities, and then uh, on the on the corporate side, on the the, the actually, I think that both the government and corporate victims were attacked in similar ways. They were using mm-hmm. password spraying attacks, where they wow. identified email addresses of the uh, legitimate email addresses at the victim companies and then they just did password sprays and sure and you know apparently some of some of them worked out so both of those should you know should prompt some thought about you know way defense you know some defense ideas because again neither of those are terribly complicated like you can you know both of those types of attacks can be perpetrated by anybody with metasploit yeah you know the spear phishing, the spear phishing stuff may take a little bit more work to do some research, but yeah, it's not that hard. Right. I mean, at the scale they did, <laughs> it would be difficult right. to run. But you know, it's it, this is not this is not a complicated attack. Um, no, it is interesting. So I do have one question for you. All right. So of those who were indicted, what what when is when is the trial going to start? I don't know. And like you know. Are they going to be extradited? No, of course not, because they're in Iran. I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm. So, so I, I. I mean, I get it. I, the the DOJ is going to do what they're going to do, but it mm-hmm. sort of feels like a. It's it's as much of a public relations move as, a, a you know, a, a, a criminal indictment. Well, it, it, in a way, yes. I mean, they'll they'll. I assume they'll be tried and convicted in absentia, but they've already they've already frozen foreign assets of, you know, of the, of, of the, um, the, the alleged perpetrators in the organizations that were involved. So, you know, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's highly unlikely that any of those people will see time in a U.S. prison. Right. So. You know, it means they probably can't travel very easily and that sort of thing, but it's, it's sort of a. Yeah. Especially when you, when you think about, uh, the U.S.'s reach into other countries. So, like, if they were, you know, if they were go- to go to a friendly, you know, country that's friendly to the U.S., then they they would be at risk of being deported. So, uh, indeed. Anyway, or I shouldn't say deported. I should say extradited. So, right. Uh, our right. last story for today comes from uh, Security Week, and this actually you just sent this to me today. I thought this was really cool. That that. It, again, from Security Awake, title is The Top Vulnerabilities Exploited by Cyber Criminals. And this comes from a report that's published every year by Recorded Future, who is a threat intelligence company. And the, the purpose of this report is to talk about the, the top exploited vulnerabilities or the, the top vulnerabilities that criminals 
talk about in underground forums in terms of, you know, what, what are we going to put into our new exploit kit and whatnot. And what I thought was, was pretty interesting is in, this is you know, probably not a big surprise, but shows a, a, a relatively important shift in the industry in the past you know, almost all of the, the, the chatter was around, you know, Adobe type vulnerabilities and Flash and PDF Reader and blah, 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 right? But this year, the top three vulnerabilities were all Microsoft, um, Microsoft Windows and, and uh, Internet Explorer vulnerabilities. And Which is definitely sort of like a harkening back to the way it was five, six, seven, eight years ago. Yes, when, you know, and and I mean to give Microsoft credit, I think they've done a pretty good job in the last couple of years. But it's an interesting trend. It it definitely is. Now they it, there is there, there's there's some confounding factors in here though. They also point out that exploit kits in general were were down significantly in popularity in 2017 from 2016, and so. A development of new kits. Devel- yeah, right. Development of new, yeah. of new exploit kits, which are you know one of the main consumers or the recent main reasons why people would talk about these exploits. But having said that, one of the one of the vulnerabilities that they mention here is really fascinating. It's um, it's CVE two thousand It's a CVE four point three or sorry CVSS four point three. Which, for those who aren't aware, that's on a scale of one to ten. And it's yeah, it's like a it's ten being the worst. Right, it's on the low side of medium. That is interesting. Now, unadjusted, because as we were educated when we were in Bogota by Taz. Correct. Yeah, you have to you do you do have to adjust. Which most I would assume most companies are not going to adjust an information disclosure vulnerability up. However, this shows that they should. That this particular vulnerability was being used not as an exploit unto itself. It was, it's an information disclosure vulnerability that the exploit kits were using to interrogate victim computers to determine what kind of antivirus they were running. And then they were pushing down tailored payloads that would, you know, that, right. that would, you know, have a high likelihood or high, uh, you know, high possibility of actually be, of infecting the system. So when you start chaining these things together, the score in a vacuum is not valid any longer. Exactly. Yeah, that does get interesting. Now, the other thing I would say is not to take away from anything we just talked about, which is very interesting stuff. But I'm always wondering when, when people put out reports about you know what the digital underground is talking about, how do you know you're seeing everything? Well, you don't. I mean, they're they're just they 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 see what they see, and that's what they're right. reporting on. I mean, they, and they could be seeing, you know, ninety percent of it, or you know, one percent of it, or right. you know, anywhere in between. So, so it's still interesting stuff, but it it, it may not. It, and I have not read the report directly, so I'm not trying to take any anything away from, um, you know, this particular organization with Quarter Future, but the way it's reported in security week is this is the top vulnerability supported by all cyber criminals and well <laughs> yeah maybe you know it's kind of it's kind of like verizon data reach report great stuff a lot of good conclusions but it's it's of what they have visibility into correct yeah, yeah. so speaking uh, it's, it's of that a, we sh- just a great assault speaking of that we we uh, i feel i feel like they're overdue i don't, I don't know 
for for a for a, a DBIR. I, I think it comes out in the spring, doesn't it? Typically. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just mm. feels like it's been too long. You need you need some of that good metrics. You need that I good do, data. I do. I do. I'm going through withdrawal. <laughs> anyway, um, that was you know that was the the point I wanted to to make. It, it's you know exploit kits are down. Adobe, um, you know Adobe is. It seems to be fading into the background, given the the demise of the rapid, apparently demise of Flash. But I will say, cattle mutilations are up. Well, that's true, and, and they actually point out that it seems like a lot of a lot of the vacuum that's been left by uh, exploit kits is being filled by cryptocurrency mining. Hmm. Well, it's easy money. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, that is the show for this week. Indeed, a rare Tuesday show. A very rare Tuesday show. And also, I want to point out, three weeks in a row, this is the longest that I have been not traveling in uh, almost a year. So that's that's good. Yeah, let's hope that that trend continues. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening and you can find links to the stores we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org you can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lerg that's L-E-R-G and me on Twitter at Malicious Link and with that we will talk again next week have a great night everybody thank you bye bye take care